James chapter 5, verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. By and large, as we read the closing words of the book of James, what we have seen and heard from the half-brother of uh, our Lord concerns the walk of the believer. James was a man of action and his exhortation, his teaching to us, uh, his encouragement was unto action on our part. And in James' vocabulary and in his world, the word Christian was not a noun that simply identifies something that we are, but rather it was a verb. It was equally as much a verb, meaning that it was something that we do. Uh, and, and so our identity is not simply the name, but it's the walk, what we look like, what we uh, live out in the real world. And to James, it isn't the talk that matters, simply our profession of what we believe and what we say, but rather it's the evidence of what we believe based upon what comes out of our lives. And for that, the Bible uses the word our walk. Now, in order for anyone to walk the Christian walk, it requires that they have at least two legs. We don't hop the Christian uh, life or, or, or through it. We don't crawl through it. We walk through it. That's the analogy that's used. And being that we're made in the image of God, we've been given two legs to do that with. And for the Christian, there are essential, uh, there are essential to that walk two things that, that I would say make up what are our legs. Number one is the Word of God. Without a Bible that reveals to us who God is, His will for our lives, His truth and the way that we're to go, without the Word, we're missing one whole leg uh, that we stand upon, that we walk with. The other of those two things, as we look at it in its totality, would be prayer. The Word of God and prayer. And prayer is our relationship with God, the communication that exists between uh, us, his people, and him, our maker, our master, our savior, and our Lord. And in order for a Christian walk to be effective, both of those two legs have to be working. The word of God has to be lived out through my life, in and out, and also there must be the relationship of my interaction with God. The word of God and prayer, both essential if I'm going to walk the Christian walk. Now, it's common that, um, that, that, that there are many believers, many Christians, that both 
legs are weak. They're weak in the word and they're weak in prayer. And thus their walk is weak. Their, um, their example is, is weak. It's not what it's supposed to be. There's another broad spectrum of Christendom that has one weak leg. You know, maybe they're strong in the word. And they're, they're biblical. They understand. They know. They even, uh, they understand. They discern the, the, the will of God, but they're weak when it comes to prayer. And I would say that by and large, for most Christians that would say that I have one weak leg or kind of a polio or something like that, that that would be the leg that's the weakest. I think that all of us, uh, wish that we had a stronger prayer life, that we had a greater interaction with God. In fact, sometimes even hearing the word prayer life, we think, well, those two things don't really belong in the same sentence as it concerns me. It's more like, you know, a prayer death or a prayer hope, you know, but a, but a prayer life, I wish it's something that I had so much more than I do. Now, the close of James in these final verses, what he gives to us is a brief but very definite call to pray. And, and, uh, and he talks to us concerning this part of our Christian life that makes prayer. What is prayer? Now, prayer is probably the greatest privilege that you and I have as Christians and as believers. Let's just think for one moment what it was like in Old Testament times for those that were uh, the disciples of Moses, you know, the great apostle of the Old Testament. The Bible tells us concerning Moses that he had a relationship with God that was more intimate than anyone else that's ever lived. That God spoke to Moses face to face like a man speaks unto his friend. And God didn't reveal himself that way to the general assembly. He did so with Moses. Now, if you were close with Moses, a family member or someone who is closely linked to him, then you would have access to God through Moses in that direct way. You could just simply say, Moses, when you talk to God tonight, would you please ask him concerning uh, such and such? And he would be able to do that, and then he would be able to bring you back an answer, and it would be kind of like real close to the top of the chain. And you'd feel quite confident in that. But most of the people that were under Moses' leadership didn't have that kind of direct access to Moses like they did. And so there was a hierarchy of leadership. Under Moses, there was five or ten that he would you know, interact with directly. Under them, there was groups of fifties and hundreds. And then under them, there was groups of thousands and ten thousands. And so if you were just an ordinary person, like such like you and I are, then in order for you to go to God or hear from God or to get help that actually could help, it was almost a hopeless situation. If, if the help didn't come from your own mind or from, from some uh, stroke of providence, then you were out of luck because you just didn't have access to God except through a mediator and you couldn't really get that close. But what Jesus Christ has provided for you and I through his birth, life, death, and resurrection and the fact that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom What he's provided for you and I is that we now have access to God with the same authority and the same confidence that Moses had. And in fact, we actually have more than what Moses had because the atonement has been completed already on our behalf. And so we have an access to God 
that is direct and personal and absolute with the guarantee that when we approach him in the name of Jesus, that we have an audience with him and that he will then fulfill and answer the things that we ask of him. The omnipotent, omniscient God has invited you and I to have an open conversation with him with no prerequisites other than that we're blood-bought by his son Jesus and that we're in his faith. And that's an amazing thing to think about and it's an incredible privilege that we have. When Jesus was on the earth and he was walking with his disciples, there was a moment, it's recorded for us in the first two verses of Luke chapter 11. It tells us that it came to pass that when he was in a certain place and he was praying, And it says that when he had ceased praying, his disciples came to him and they put forth the question to him and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. They they had this desire after observing his life and then the source of where his life came from, that something inside registered with them and they realized that what made him who he was and able to do the things that he did was the connection that he had with his father. And they knew that if they were to ever enjoin themselves upon that thing that was to be their privilege, that they would need to know how to pray in the same way that he prayed. Now, I know for a fact that it was the very intent of the Son of God that they would ask this question. That was why he was praying in their eyesight that day in a way that they could see. He was hoping they would ask the question because he knew how important it was for them to know how to pray. And when he taught them, the most remarkable thing that he said to them in in his opening statement concerning how to pray is that he said, when you pray, say, our Father. That he gave to them the privilege of coming to God, not in the relationship of a servant and their master, or as a God and his creation, but the relationship of a father with his offspring. Now, what kind of a boldness is that to approach? How many of us, when we're going to talk to a father, if we have a good father, are going to have any reservations about the way that we do it, or when we do it, or what it is that we come to him about? And it was the most revolutionary idea that anyone had ever attached to prayer to give the person praying access to the one being prayed to in the relationship of father and son, or father and daughter. It's remarkable what Jesus gave. Now, Jesus also knew and knows that our logic and our pride would confuse and frustrate our coming to God with freedom and access in the way that we can. And so a little bit while later on in his ministry, it's recorded in Luke chapter 18, he gave a parable and it says in the first verse of chapter 18 that he spoke this parable unto them to the end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Don't get tired or weary or stop or draw back. And then he tells the story about the unjust judge who the widow came to him and and wanted to be avenged, but the unjust judge didn't care about people and he didn't care about this widow. And so he didn't listen to her. But because she continually came and kept asking, finally he said, this woman is wearying me by her continual coming. I will avenge her of her adversary. And Jesus then giving the interpretation of the parable, not a parable of comparison. God doesn't care about you. You know, you got to bother him to get things done. No, no, a parable of contrast. He said, hear what the unjust judge says. 
But your father, how much more willing will he be to avenge his own children quickly, though he bear long with them? Jesus, knowing that there will be times that the answer to prayer won't come immediately, and so seeking to encourage us to not grow weary or draw back from prayer, he says, listen, continue to pray. Don't let your prayer fire wane because there's a delay in the answer or because your logic or your understanding or any other thing keeps you back from your knees or from the prayer closet. Pray, Jesus taught us to pray. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 22, Jesus said to his disciples and to us, he said, and all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. Jesus giving us the assurance that if we will ask, we will receive. In John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, on a separate occasion, Jesus said to his disciples again, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, That will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He says, again, in John chapter 15, verse 7, he says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Just a few verses later, down in verse 16 of the same chapter, Jesus said, You have not chosen me, But I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Again, Jesus reiterating that God is open to our asking. Again, in John chapter 16, this time in verse 23, Jesus said, and in that day, You shall ask me nothing. Verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. Then in verse 26, again of the same chapter, Jesus said, at that day you shall ask in my name. And I say not unto you that the Father or say unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. And over and over and over again, in so many different ways, Jesus gives to us the directive and the invitation to ask that we're to come to God and that we're to have a vitality in our prayer life. And so prayer is the great privilege of the Christian. It's also the substance of our relationship with God. You cannot have a relationship without communication. You can know about someone. You can know facts of them. You can know of them, but you can't know them unless there's communication and that that communication goes two ways. And so without prayer, it's impossible for us to have a relationship with God. Prayer is our substance. Prayer is also our source of all promised and needful things. God has given us promises. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is full of promises, things that God has supplied and said that these things are there for you. However, he has attached to those promises the condition of asking. He says to ask of him. Because he wants to relate to us. And so we see even the promises of God 
are withheld oftentimes as he waits on us to ask for them. Prayer is our source. And finally, prayer is also our duty. That we are here on this world as his sons, but we're also servants of his. And therefore, in that service, it is, it is necessary that we pray both for God's work as it goes forth and is accomplished on the earth, and also that we pray for one another, that we have that responsibility to be in prayer concerning God's will for our lives and his kingdom, and also God's work in each other, in both the lost and the saved. We have a duty and a call to pray. And thus, a Christian profession that is void of prayer cannot move forward. You cannot live the Christian life or walk the walk of a believer without prayer. It's part of what we are. A prayerless Christian is in large part a Christian in name only. Romans chapter 8 verse 15 tells us that he has given to us the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And if in us there's a lack of prayer or a weakness of prayer, then it's an indication that we need more of His Holy Spirit because His Spirit is given to us partially with the intent that we would be a people that pray. Now, James, at the close of his epistle, bringing again to our attention the importance of this thing that we call prayer, he holds before us just three small elements on one of these great truths of the Bible. He tells us, first of all, who should pray and on what occasion. He tells us then, secondarily, what is the great hindrance to prayer. And then finally, he closes out by telling us that we can be assured that prayer is absolutely effective and worth the time that we give to it. And so, James begins by telling us who should pray. And he gives three uh, qualifications there. First of all, he says that the afflicted. He said, are any that are among you, or if any among you are afflicted, then let them pray. Now, how many in here can give an amen to the fact that our, that afflictions are going to happen in the Christian life from time to time? Yeah, there's pretty much a universal amen on that. And anyone who would say otherwise is just a liar or they're just not a Christian. Because the Bible says that many are the afflictions of the righteous. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. And because this is not our home, and because we're in a foreign element, and because we still live in the fallen flesh and a fallen society, there's going to be afflictions that come upon our lives. Now, the tendency of many of us when affliction comes our way is that we can withdraw from God a little bit. We can almost be resentful because of the things that are happening. Or sometimes we can listen to the condemnation of the enemy who whispers in our ear and says, well, the reason why you're going through this affliction is because God doesn't favor you or because of something that you've done that's grieved him or for some other reason. And we believe that voice. And so we allow the affliction to come between us and our fellowship with God and our prayer life grows cold in those times that we feel the affliction of God. And what James is saying in the midst of this or in the midst of affliction is that we shouldn't draw back from God, but rather that's a time that we should fall on our knees and we should cry out to God. That He would both help us in the midst of it, 
afflictions, uh, of the affliction, that he would succeed in his purpose for bringing the affliction upon our life, or that he would reveal the reason why that affliction is present at the time that it is. And any of those things that we ask of God, God is willing to grant to us, and thus we should pray when we're in the midst of our affliction. The second who that we should, or that should be praying is the person that's Mary. He said, are any among you Mary? Then let them sing psalms. Ironic as it is, the other extreme that causes people to withdraw from prayer are prosperous times. Times when things are going well. Now, how many in this room can give an amen to the fact that there are times in our Christian experience that things go well? Amen. Yeah, God is good to us. And he is, he is faithful that, that though we go through valleys of difficulty, there are also mountaintops and there are plateaus of good times in our lives where God's presence is fresh, where his revelation is fresh, where his blessing is upon us, where there's a relative peace in our homes and in our relationships and in our, our, our sense of well-being. And we go through those times. And, and unfortunately, we're apt in those times to just coast. Our devotions can wax lean. Our prayer life can kind of wax cold a little bit. And we can withdraw from God in the time of prosperity. This was the great sin of the children of Israel. It was in their prosperity that they cooled to the point where apostasy began to work its work in the nation. And it brought them on a downward slide. And we need to be aware of that. And we need to not withdraw from the prayer closet and our interaction with God when there are good times. When there is merriment in our lives, we still must pray. And then the third group of people that James bid to continue in prayer are those that are sick. He said, if any among you are sick, then let them call for the elders of the church who will anoint them with oil and then the prayer of faith will cause the sick to recover and if they have committed any sins, then those sins also will be forgiven them. Now, how many in this room can give an amen to the fact that sickness is a reality in the Christian life? Amen. Yes, sickness is something that every single one of us deal with from time to time on varying scales And it's something that is completely and absolutely unavoidable for us. It's not a sign of spiritual weakness for us to grow sick or to have some physical infirmity. And it's not necessarily the consequence of sin or of a lifestyle choice that we've made, though it can be. Sickness happens to people, even unto Christians. Now, God's mandate to us, if sickness happens to come upon our lives to some uh, degree or another, is that we're to give him the first place of access concerning that sickness. Whether it just be that we acknowledge him in it, or whether we ask him for the healing, or whether we receive it from him, or whether we don't. He calls us to pray when that sickness comes upon uh, our life. We think of the woman that had the issue of blood for 12 years. And the Bible tells us that for 12 years, she spent the entirety of her living, all of her substance, everything that she had, that in some way she might find a solution to this hemorrhaging that she's experiencing in her body. And she was none the better for all of her efforts and all of her expenditures. 
But she thought within herself as she saw the Son of God pass through her village on that day that if I can just work my way through the crowd and touch the border of his garment, I know that I'll be healed of this infirmity. And so she does, she touches him, and she knew immediately that the issue of her hemorrhaging was was healed on the moment that she touched him. And you guys know the story. Jesus called her to attention. He exposed uh, the situation. He used it as a, a testimony to the man who was walking with him that he was about, you know, and Jesus healed this woman that could not have been healed in any other way um, by any physician or any technique. We read in the Old Testament about one of the kings, Asa, who generally was a very good king, but he became lifted up in pride in the later years of his life. And in his pride, the Bible tells us that he was diseased in his feet. That something happened to him where he was crippled or unable to walk. And the Bible tells us in very plain terms, it says, but he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. Therefore, the sickness that he had led unto death. And the inference there is not just a notation that, well, he didn't acknowledge God, but the inference is that if he had sought God in his sickness, rather than relying upon the arm of flesh and the wisdom of physicians and science, that God was willing to heal something that otherwise took his life. And so what God bids us to do when those sicknesses and infirmities come upon our lives is that we're to give him first place in our lives to be the one that heals and brings wholeness back to us and we're to do it in the way that he has prescribed. Now, God doesn't look down upon the use of a physician or medicine or science or chemistry or any of those things that he has given to modern man as a means of helping the sick. But what he asks of us is that we would give him first place and not make him the final solution when all else fails. And so between the afflicted, the merry, and the sick, I don't think there's anyone that doesn't fall somewhere in the spectrum of one of those three things. And what the, 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 the writer tells us to do is that we are to pray, that there's to be a fellowship, a conversation, a relationship ongoing between us and God at all times. That's who's to pray. Now, what is the great hindrance to prayer? What is it that will cripple a prayer life more than anything else that has the potential to cripple or to slow down a prayer life? And the answer is sin. Twice, James makes uh, inference to this in his little exhortation. First, at the end of verse 15, when he says that if that person that's sick has committed sins, that they will be forgiven him. And then again in verse 16, when he says that we're to confess our faults one to another and pray one for another that we may be healed. And that healing sometimes is a physical healing, but sometimes that healing needs to be a spiritual healing. Sometimes it's a prayer life healing. You know, that there's a, 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 an infirmity in my spiritual life and that needs to be healed. And by and large, sin is the great hindrance to our access to God. The old Chinese uh, pastor and theologian, Watchman Nee, is famous for the illustration that he gave concerning this. He held up one day in his congregation a small leaf from a willow tree, just the smallest of leaves. And he said, you see this? And he asked his congregation, which is larger, this small leaf or the sun that gives its light and heat to the earth? And of course, it was rhetorical, the answer, of course, being the sun. But he said, however, isn't it amazing that something as small as this leaf 
can block out the entirety of the light of the sun if it's held in just the right spot. If I put it right in front of my eyes, I can use just this small little thing to block out something as vast and large as the sun. That's what sin is in the life of the Christian. Sin is something that is placed within our life that eclipses our access to the resources of God. God said in Psalm chapter 66, verse 18, through, the, through, through David the psalmist by his spirit, he said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That is, not that if there's any sin present in my life. James, I'm sorry, John tells us that if we say we have no sin, that we're liars. There's always something not right within us. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying if we regard it, if we have respect to it, if we harbor it and hold it, if there's something in our lives that we won't give over to God, then that's going to be a great hindrance to our experiencing of God in prayer, of asking and of receiving. Oftentimes we'll have difficulty even approaching unto him because we know those things are there and the conviction of those things keeps us from having an effective prayer life. Through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, God says to us plainly, he says, listen, my hand isn't short, too short that I can't save. And my ear isn't heavy that I can't hear. God says, but here's the issue. Here's the problem is that your sins have separated between you and your God. And it is absolutely a principle and a a law in God's economy that if we allow sin to go unconfessed and unchecked within our lives, then it will cut us off from the access that we otherwise could have to God in prayer. Jude, uh, we're going to get into Jude after we finish the Peters and uh, and the Johns in, in just a couple of months, hopefully. Jude, the theme of his little short one chapter letter, the message that Jude brings in its singularity is that we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. And, and, and the meat of his exhortation is that he gives a list of things that throughout the history of God has separated people from his love and from receiving all that he wants to do within their lives. And so this is a principle in God's kingdom and economy that goes through from the old even through the New Testament, that sin keeps us back from experiencing God in prayer. And it's important that we understand it. So what's the solution when we find ourselves in sin? Well, twice he says it, that we're to confess. Confession is the answer to it. He says that we're to confess our sins one to another and pray for one another that we might be healed. The word confess is an interesting word. It comes from uh, two Greek words that are combined together. Conjunction of the word homo, which means the same, like homogenized milk, you know, Homo and logos, which is what word? It's the word word, right? The word or the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. So to confess is to homologeo or to say, to speak the same thing or the same word. And so to confess our sins, what we're doing is that we're saying the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. So if God says something is wrong, we're bringing ourselves into alignment with what God says concerning that area of my life, and I'm owning the fact that that's a reality in my person. I'm confessing my sin to God. He says here, James, that we're also to confess our faults one to another. Now, I don't believe that that means that we're to have open times of confession meetings. 
you know, where one can stand up and say, I stole a hundred bucks from you. And, you know, and, and, and that there's just this big, huge confession of sin party. No, I think that if you sin against someone, that you should go to that person and you should seek reconciliation. You should confess your fault to that person. I believe that if you have someone in your life that you're close with, an accountability partner, someone that you pray with, or someone that, uh, that that's close to you in the faith, a brother or sister that God has made a friend, a, a genuine um, relationship that you have in the body of Christ, that there should be a confession, that we should be vulnerable, not just one to the other, but one with the other. And then, and then a mutual praying to, you know, for, for those sins. Confession ultimately must be directed towards God, that we're confessing our sins to Him. First John chapter 1 verse 9, John the Apostle, he writes and he says, if we confess our sins, then He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's an amazing promise that's given to us there in the Bible. Because oftentimes we think that we have to be the ones that remove the sin from our lives before we can approach God. And that can be a huge stumbling block because you know what? You can't remove the sin from your life. It's invisible and it's eternal and its hold upon us is something that we don't have the power to pry its fingers loose from. And what God tells us is that the way to find deliverance and victory over that sin is not through our efforts and strivings, but simply through our confession and the humility of our heart to bring it to Him in that way and lay it at the foot of the cross and say, God, if you look in my heart right now, this is what you're going to see. And it is so contrary to your word and your will and everything that you stand for. And I confess before you, God, that I am undone, unclean, and before you I am nothing, and I'm asking you today to forgive and to cleanse this sin. And the Bible tells us that when we come to God in confession, that He is faithful, meaning that He does it every time, He's faithful and just, meaning that He has already met the terms qualifying Him to be able to take that sin out of our lives. And the justice of God's removal of that sin is on the cross of Jesus Christ. That because my sin has already been judged and punished on the body of Christ, God can faithfully and fairly respond to my confession. And what does he do? It says to forgive us, meaning that he absolves us of that sin. And then secondarily then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the word cleanse is the Greek word catheterize, which is where we get the English word catheter. Have you ever had one of those? An instrument designed to remove waste. And God has the ability to remove internal waste that we do not have the ability to remove ourselves. And the Bible says that it's when we confess our sins to Him that it's then that the blood of Christ does its work, He forgives and He removes that sin from us. And so confession of sin is of vital importance as it relates to our prayer vitality. Because without it, our prayer life is hindered. And James says, sin must be dealt with. It must be dealt with or else our prayer life will never be what it ultimately is intended by God to be. And so confession. The third thing that James gives to us concerning prayer is that prayer is effective and it's a worth while venture that when we pray we can expect that God is going to answer our prayers and to do that he gives the example of the prophet Elijah 
He tells us there uh, at the end of verse 16. It's one of the most amazing verses concerning prayer in the whole Bible. It says, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now the words effectual and fervent in the Greek are one word combined. And you know what the word is? It's amazing. It's the word energeo. Can you guess what English word we get from that? Energy, right? And what he's saying is that the energetic or the zealous or the fervent prayer, so basically when we give ourselves to the energy or to the work of seeking God in prayer, the heated effort with the work and time that goes into it, of, he then says, of a righteous man, you say, ah, there it is. There's fine print in every contract. You watch the commercial, you listen to the salesman, and you just wait for it. You know this, you can have this with just three easy payments of $5,999, you know, and you say, ah, there it is. It's the unreachable aspect of the promise that's given. No, 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 listen. This isn't the unreachable hook or, or kink or, you know, cog that stops the wheel of my prayer life. Rather, this is the most easy obstacle for you and I when it comes to prayer because it's the obstacle that's already been overcome. Do you know what makes you and I righteous before a holy God? The person of Jesus Christ. The fact that we have come to him and placed our faith and trust in him for his salvation and that our names are written in heaven, that makes you and I righteous. Not because of what we've done or what we haven't done, but completely because of what he has done on our behalf and because now when God looks at us, he sees Christ because we're in Christ. And therefore, any person that's in Jesus Christ here tonight stands before God as righteous. And if you are tonight before God without unconfessed sin and you are placed in Christ, then you are the righteous man or woman that James is talking about here. And so the effectual or energized, fervent prayer of a believer, a righteous man or woman, and then he says, it availeth much. And the word in the Greek means has great force, meaning that your prayers move the hand of God when they're offered to him. You say, that is a simple yet very powerful description of what happens when a person prays. But could you put some flesh and blood on it for me so I can understand what it looks like? Sure, I can because James did. Look at verse 17. He gives to us an example of what that means. He says, Elijah was a man subject to like passions like we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. And so he gives to us this example of Elijah, this man of the Old Testament. And the amazing thing about this example above any other example that he could give that is the most encouraging thing to me is who the man Elijah was. Now, if I was trying to do this for effect, and I was the author of this, I would have used Daniel, or I would have used Moses. You know, I mean, just Moses prayed, and man, the Red Sea opened up. Daniel prayed, and visions were revealed, and kings, you know, laid down, and prosperity was given, and lives were spared. But he doesn't do that. He uses Elijah as an example. And the reason why he uses Elijah as an example is because of who Elijah was. And who was Elijah? He tells us that he was a man of like passions 
like as we are. That of all of the Old Testament prophets, personality-wise, Elijah is the most relatable to you and I. You say, well, what was the personality of Elijah that makes him the most like us? Well, first of all, Elijah was a man who was very much bipolar. I mean, he was textbook bipolar. The ability to have extreme highs followed by extreme lows. To have seasons of great courage followed by seasons of extreme fear. To have seasons where he's greatly encouraged and full of life followed by seasons where he's depressed and despairing to the point where he even wants to die. Never a greater picture of a man who is an emotional roller coaster than the person of Elijah. And he was like that from the first moment of his calling all the way until the time that he went home. Not only bipolar, he was also a textbook introvert. He didn't like to be around people. He wasn't a people person. His ministry, his life was much in isolation. He did everything that he could to be by himself. He didn't even like his um, associates. He didn't even like Elisha, the one that God called him to disciple, and often tried to get away from him. He was not a people person. He was very much introverted. He was also very grouchy. When you read about the way that he interacted with people, the kind of responses and the things that he gave, you know, the information that he would give out, he was a grouchy person and he was just a little bit arrogant, you know, and had the tendency to be that. And so when God is talking to us about what prayer looks like in the life of a believer, he uses a bipolar, introverted, grouchy, arrogant man As an example of one who is just like us. (laughs) God knows us, doesn't he? You know. And doesn't that encourage us just a little bit that if Elijah then can pray and have the testimony that he did on the pages of scripture and in the chronicles of God's history, then maybe, just maybe, I might have a chance of having an audience with God and seeing him do things through my life as well. Well, The Bible tells us that Elijah prayed and that God answered. And there are three prayers that Elijah prayed that are recorded for us in the Bible that had answers from God. The first of those three was when Elijah first met Ahab at the beginning of ministry and he told him that it will not rain except according to my word. The second time, second prayer that we have recorded of Elijah was in the contest that Elijah had with the 450 prophets of Baal. When he prayed and fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice in the altar, a very exciting moment in the history of God. And then the third time that Elijah prayed and received an answer was at the end of the drought, three and a half years after it hadn't rained, when Elijah prayed for rain the second time then, and God then sent the rain uh, to him. So why why are those three things important to us as it concerns our education and understanding of prayer? Well, the first one, Ahab um, and the drought at the very beginning, the the reason why that's important to us to understand, and, and listen here, listen, is because the fact that Elijah prayed that it would not rain is not recorded in the story back in 1 Kings chapter 18. We would not know that the drought was the result of Elijah's prayer unless James told us here, because it is not recorded for us there. And you say, well, why is that significant? Because it's important to understand that everything that God does on the earth, he does as the result of prayer, even if it's not recorded in scripture as such. God's hand is moved by prayer, not simply by the confession of our mouths. Prayer is an essential ingredient. 
And thus it's important that we pray. The second instance, an example of Elijah praying, the contest of the prophets of Baal. Why is that given as an example? Here's why. Because that prayer was offered in the space of about 10 seconds on the fly and it received immediate and powerful answer. I mean, Elijah just builds this altar, puts the bull upon it, has these guys dance and cut themselves for half a day with no response from the heavens. And then he shuts them up. He says, all right, that's enough. And he stands up in front of the entire nation, including all of those pagans. And he utters these simple words before God. It takes 10 seconds to pray. It says in chapter 18, verse 36 of 1 Kings, he said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their heart back again. That's it. And boom, fire falls from heaven, consumes the the sacrifice, the altar, it drinks up the water, and a great victory ensues that day. But it's important to understand this in the context of prayer, that there are times in the life of every one of you and I that we offer to God our prayer in a moment, in an instant, while we're in the thick of things. It's a short, concise prayer that we think God is never going to hear this. And he will answer that prayer in the immediate. There are times that God answers prayer immediately. And he does it. And he does it. And if you will pray, you will realize that and see that in your own life. The final example that's given concerning Elijah's prayer is at the end of the drought. And the reason why that's significant and important to us is because the answer to Elijah's prayer didn't come as simply as it had in times past. At the end of the drought, Elijah prayed seven times that rain would come. He went into the cave and he prayed. He came out and asked the servant, any sign of rain? Nothing. He went in again the second time, came out, nothing. He went in the third time, prayed earnestly, came out, nothing. I think most of us would have given up at that point, don't you think? I think I would have had the temptation or tendency to think, God, did I not hear you right on this? But he went in the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh time, praying the same thing each time, asking God to end the drought and to send the rain. And when he came out of the cave the seventh time, he said to the servant, he said, anything? And the servant said, nothing. But, but you know, now that you mention it, if you look way out there on the horizon, far as the eye can see, almost to the vanishing point, there's a small cloud about the size of a man's fist. Maybe even sarcastically, he whispered those words to Elijah. And Elijah said, you see a man's fist, I see the hand of the Lord. We got to go. The rain's coming. And before he could even get down the mountainside, the clouds had thickened and the storm had come. And there was a rain like Israel had never seen, at least in three and a half years as the floods of God came upon him in response to the prayer of Elijah. God knows that there are times that when we pray, our prayer must be persistent. There's times when there are things happening in spiritual realms that we can't see and that we don't understand and that it's imperative that we pray until the answer comes and that we not give up. That's why Jesus gave that parable concerning the unjust judge and told us that we should be persistent in prayer. Because there's going to be times that we need to wait on God for that answer. But know this, Christian, that answer will come. Don't give up. Keep praying for the thing that God has placed 
within your heart. Now here's what we must realize as we, as we leave Elijah on the pages of James here. Is that if you take prayer out of Elijah's ministry, the entire thing loses all of its power. There is no testimony concerning this man Elijah on the pages of Scripture if he didn't have a prayer life. Without prayer, none of the things that happened in his life would have happened at all. God answers prayer, and without prayer, God does nothing. The Bible tells us that Abraham prayed, but if he hadn't, if Abraham had not prayed, there would have been no Isaac, even though He was promised to him. It was through prayer that the promise was realized. Isaac prayed and Rebekah conceived at the prayer of her husband Isaac. Jacob wrestled with God all night in prayer and through his prayer he abated the wrath of his brother Esau and was made a prince with God, but it was wrought through prayer. Rachel, because of her prayer, she was barren, but she conceived Joseph, the son of Jacob. Joseph, it was the answer to his prayer that he interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh that led also then to the saving of Egypt and to the exaltation of his position. Moses, it was in his prayer that he received the call to go back to Egypt, and it was through prayer that he prevailed over Amalek and saved Israel from destruction when they were in their infancy as a nation. It was the prayer of Joshua that precipitated his call as the leader of the nation, and it was the prayer of Joshua that enabled the victory that obtained the promised land for the children of Israel. It was the prayer of Gideon that emboldened him and strengthened him to fight against the Midianites when the odds were not in his favor, not by a long shot. It was the prayer of Samson's parents that caused his mother to conceive. It was through prayer that Hannah conceived when she was barren and gave Samuel to the nation. It was David's prayer that caused him to be recognized by God as a man after his own heart. It was Solomon's prayer that wrought the wisdom in him that made him who he was and that also then ushered in the greatest period that Israel ever experienced upon the earth. It was Hezekiah's prayer that caused 185,000 Assyrian troops to be slaughtered in a single night by an army when he just laid out the threat before God and asked him to help. God moved on Hezekiah's behalf. Elijah and Elisha both saw the dead raised through the prayer that they offered to God. Ezra and Nehemiah through prayer saw the return of the captivity and saw the people of God reestablished in their land. Isaiah, it was in prayer that he received his call from God and the message that he was to give to the nation. Jeremiah, through his constant prayer, was kept alive in hostile times. Daniel, through his prayer, interpreted dreams and saw visions and gave direction to the nation, was exalted in three administrations, was given the prophecy of all of God's kingdom for all of future generations. And it was through his prayer that the door was opened then for God to fulfill his promise to bring the people back into the land. Zechariah and Elizabeth, it was through their prayer in her old age and in her barrenness that John the Baptist was conceived, the forerunner for the very Messiah himself. It was Jesus in prayer that the Holy Spirit fell upon his life and literally the force through which the Son of God did all that he did in his ministry upon the earth. It was the prayer of Jesus and his intercession that kept Peter 
from being sifted like wheat and his testimony from disappearing off the pages of scripture. And it's his prayer that today keeps the same thing from happening to you and I. It was the church's prayer in the early days that brought the Holy Spirit upon us and then refell upon them. And the result of the church's prayer that many were added to the church, that great grace was upon the church, that God's favor was upon them and all that they did, it was all wrought through prayer. Without the prayer of the church, Peter dies in prison in Acts chapter 12. And again, he leaves the testimony. But it says, because prayer was wrought by the church unto God for Peter, the angel set him free and his ministry continued. Peter, it was through his prayer and the prayer of Cornelius that brought the gospel to the Gentiles. If Peter hadn't been praying that day, there would be no vision, no sheet let down, no voice that said, what I have cleansed, call not thou unclean. It would have been someone else. God would have done it, but Peter would have missed out. Paul, the very foundation of his calling, when God saw him there on the moment of his conversion, he said to Ananias, behold, he prayeth. And the reason for God's call upon Paul's life was directly linked to the fact that he was praying. It was Paul and Barnabas that were seen set free from prison in the moment that they prayed. You say, why are you going on and on and on? We get the point. God answers prayer. Here's why. Because I want you to consider this as we get ready to close our time together here tonight. That if prayer is upheld by God as something that is to be so prominent and is so important and is so powerful in the life of God's people on the earth, then I want you to just think for one minute what the testimony of all of those lives would look like if you take prayer out of the occasion. Nothing happens. Those names are erased. God's will is still accomplished because he finds someone else through whom he can do his work. But these people miss out on all that God would have done. There could have been no Isaac, no Jacob, no Joseph. It could have been other names. There could have been no Exodus, no Moses, no Joshua, no conquest, no Samson, no Samuel. Hannah dies, a barren woman, without prayer. Much of the script dies, or at least the individual plan, without prayer. And here's what I would say to you tonight, Christian, who's here listening, and God is saying, pray, listen, understand, that without prayer, resources, plans, Gifts, graces, favors, whole destinies are left on heaven's table and never realized by the people unto whom God would have freely given them if they had but asked. What will we see when we stand before him in heaven that could have been ours, that would have been ours if we had allowed him to strengthen our prayer life and we had just given ourselves to that thing that he calls us into. If you're here tonight and you are a prayerless Christian, then I can guarantee that you're missing out on much of what God has for you. There's no question about it. It is absolutely a fact. The Bible tells us that God can do all things and that he will do all things and that nothing is too hard for him, nothing's impossible for him, but he bids us to ask. So what are you here with tonight? Do you come in here tonight and there's a rift in your marriage? Let me ask you, have you brought it to God and insistently, persistently asked Him to move on your behalf? If you haven't, then you don't have the right to expect that anything is going to change in the situation. Do you have money problems, physical or health problems? Do you want to know what your destiny is and what God made for you and put you on the earth to do? Do you need more of His Holy Spirit, victory over sin? 
Do you need to know what it means to have freedom in life in Christ, the abundant life that He promised? Are you waiting upon Him for the open door that He promised to bring? Are you looking for breakthrough with your kids or your offspring or the salvation of your family or your extended family? Let me ask you, are you praying? Because if not, the prayerless saint should not expect that they will receive anything from God. It was A.J. Gordon that said, we can do more than pray after we have prayed, but we cannot do more than pray until we pray. And prayer is of vital importance. It is an essential for us to pray. The worship team can come as we uh, close out our study tonight. About two years ago, in my own life, I was going through a season um, that I would call a prayerless season of my Christian experience. And, and I came to a point where I realized that, that I'm, I'm distant from God, I'm dry, I, I need to be near Him. I'm a pastor. <laughs> I need to pray. And I thought, this is just absolutely ridiculous for me to continue on in this weakened state of of just little tiny prayers or public prayers or something, but not to have a prayer life in and of myself. And I made a decision on a certain day, and I don't know what brought it on or brought it to pass, but I just decided, and I I can't even say when it was or why. There wasn't even a specific thing. I just said, that's long and that's it. I'm going to pray. I need to pray. I must pray at all costs. Nothing, nothing can keep me back from this. And I just began uh, to pray, to just get alone and just cry out to God and shut out every other voice, shut out the internal thing, shut out the, the voice of logic that, 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 that argues against prayer and just know no matter what, I'm going to pray. And I began to just do that for, for day after day and it turned into a week after week after week and, and things in my life at that moment of deciding that I'm going to be a Christian that prays, whatever that costs me, I'm going to do that. I need to be that. Things began to happen in my life. There was changes in, in, in me. There was personal revival, weeping, wet eyes, hearing of God, times of refreshing, cleansing, revelation from Him, insight into things in my life that otherwise I wouldn't have had. Major changes in my attitude, my outlook, my perspective toward things, my faith. The Word of God was re-energized. Things began began to come to life in in me and and around me. I saw changes in my kids, direct in, in, in relation, answer to prayer, attitudes changing, things changing around. His voice became clear. The greatest thing of all that happened in the midst of that time is that his presence, the reality of his presence became so real to me that everything else became a distant second. And it remains so to this day. To be in his presence, there's nothing like it. There's nothing worth having that's worth trading that away to just be in his presence in the the way that he desires us to be in his presence. And that is the will of God for every single one of us, is that we would experience him in that way. And if we choose not to, if we say, well, I'm I'm in the word, I go to church, I pray from time to time, my five minutes in the morning is good enough for me, or the moments I get in the evening and all the rest, you can do that. And you can limp through this Christian life and spiritually come into heaven, lacking all that God would have had for you. But if you would say, God, I would have nothing other than what you would have for me. And I will not leave this earth having it written on my tombstone that I was a prayerless Christian. And if you would come to God and approach Him boldly and become a Christian that prays, you will see the hand of God move in your life. You will see doors open in your life. You will hear His voice like you've never heard it. 
You will know his presence and his peace and the satisfaction that he gives in a way that is unparalleled by anything this world can give to you. And that is an absolute guarantee to any person that will come to God with an open heart and approach him in Jesus' name and believe him in prayer. I will warn you. The saying is true that the devil trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon their knees. There will be warfare. There will be an attack. Satan will seek to drive you right out. And he did that and he does that for me even now when I seek to pray. And here's how I beat that. Is that I picture myself standing with a sword and right in front of me is a castle. And a closed castle gate And all I know is that I need to get in there because my king is in there. And outside there are 40 armed guards that are going to keep me from getting in that door. But I'm not letting them get in. And I take the sword in my hand and I I do this visually. I know I'm weird. But I charge that gate and I will fight my way into his presence. And they fight. And here comes one. Here comes doubt. You think God's actually going to hear you and swings his sword? I don't care. I don't care. I am not going to doubt because God said I could come condemnation right behind him swings his sword and says, you think you can approach God with the attitude that you have? You went to bed so late, you rose up. You, you got nothing before God. You think you can, you, it's going to be at least a week before you can hear from God. I'm not listening to it. I don't care what you say. Logic comes in and says, you're going to talk to nothing. You're literally going to talk into the, I don't care. I'm getting into his presence today, no matter what it costs. And every one of those things falls when we take God at his word and we say, God, I know I'm not qualified, but I come in Jesus' name. And I will stand before you, Lord. And I ask that you fill me with your spirit and make me today to be someone who prays. Give me the words. Give me what I need. I need you, Lord. And God will bring us into his presence. Tonight as I close the service, I actually prayed a strange thing today, and I believe that God heard me. <clears throat> you know how you watch the Super Bowl? I know I'm late. Don't worry. I'm, this thing going to take long. And they time it so that right at the end of the national anthem, the planes fly over. That, that blows my mind. I mean, to think about the dynamics of how that works and how they do that. And someone probably could say, that's yeah, actually quite simple, but it blows my mind. And I prayed this this morning. I said, God, I said, in tonight's service, I'm going to call your people to pray. And God, I pray that at the exact moment you see your people kneeling at the altar, that your eyes would pass over our congregation and that you would reward the open heart and that you would pour out upon us a spirit of grace and supplication. And tonight what I'm going to do, I'm just going to right now, I'm going to get down and I'm going to kneel right there on the floor. And while the worship team plays, I just invite you, if you say, you know what, I need a prayer life, this is ridiculous, I'm a prayerless Christian and I don't want to be a prayerless Christian. I invite you to join me Right here. The worship team will play. They'll pause in their song. And when they do, I'm going to pray for us that are gathered here. And I'm going to ask God to fall upon us afresh and to give to us the spirit of grace and of supplication and to open up the well of prayer that he desires to flow out of our lives. And I believe he's going to do it. And so, simple invitation. God, my heart is open. I lend you my mouth as an avenue of ministry. I lend you my life, God. I want what you've got for me, my destiny, my future, my hope. I want all of you and whatever I can have, 
Lord, give it to me. So the lights go dim, the songs they rise, the spirit falls. Will you say, God, I need more of you in my life? The altar is open. Shall we stand and sing?